Hello and welcome to Insights for Manufacturing. I'm your host, Jeff Beecham, and throughout the series, we'll be looking at some of the challenges and opportunities facing UK manufacturing in 2022. In this series, I'm hosting a range of guests from service businesses and support organisations who are going to be providing subject matter expertise and guidance on a diverse range of topics affecting UK manufacturing. Today, we're going to be uncovering some of the innovations, challenges and opportunities within the UK steel and metal sector. So I'm delighted to welcome my special guest today, Chris McDonald. Chris is a CEO at the Materials Processing Institute. Good morning, Chris, and how are you? I'm really well, thanks, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me on, and it'd be good to talk to you. Yep, you're very welcome. I've been looking forward to this this episode, Um, materials and metals processing. Yeah, there's almost something a little bit alchemist uh, uh, about, you know, the art of processing uh, metals, whether it's... uh, molten you know castings or forgings some say a bit of a black art really interesting topic so i guess you know the materials processing you know it does play an important part in in industry and you know we're all moving towards this net zero and we've got this you know constant need to improve processing techniques and and you know there's a lot of research and advancement in materials uh, composition I guess the Materials Processing Institute and, and your members are facing some huge challenges uh, currently. You know, we've got energy costs, metal prices going through the roof, all the supply chain disruption. It's uh, it's a bit of a torrid time, but I guess with all of that, um, with, with all of those headwinds, there, there's a lot of opportunity to, to come as well. So before we get into the main discussion, Chris, can you just give us a bit of an overview as to, you know, what you do, what your role is at the Materials Processing Institute, please? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Jeff. So it is it is great to be here and, and talk about, we'll have a good chat about some of those issues that you've raised because you, you, you're bang on with what the challenges are in the sector. Um, so yeah, I run the Materials Processing Institute. The Institute is the UK's national centre for innovation for the steel and metal sector. Um, and it's been around quite a long time, actually. So it's been doing this job for 70 years. The Institute was set up um, 10 days before D-Day, in fact, by Winston Churchill's government to help rebuild the UK economy uh, post-war. Um, and, and we've got a job to do now, actually, to help rebuild the UK economy for a net zero world as well. Um, so, uh, so it's a really exciting place to work with lots of uh, great colleagues uh, doing innovation and getting technology out into industry. Great. And, and your role as, uh, as CEO, what does that involve? You know, how, how are you, uh, you know, I guess there's strategy and, you know, there's a lot of member discussions I- involved. What, what, what do you do on a, on a sort of day to day? Well, I've worked in and around the steel sector for 20 years now and I've, I've done work in, in manufacturing and in commercial as well as innovation but ultimately it's innovation and technology where my, where my heart is really um, and so yeah so a lot of what I do is really about looking to the future trying to identify where the future technology trends are and then actually being quite challenging to the companies in the sector so they, they you know they kind of pay me and they pay my colleagues money to speak truth to power as it were so that means we don't always agree but we do give honest and impartial advice um, so there's a, there's a great deal of that. And probably about 30, 40% of my time is spent in London, uh, talking to officials, talking to politicians, to really help get the best sort of policy base as well um, for the UK, for the steel and metal sector. Because the thing is, every single part of our economy is touched in some way by steel and metals, everything we do. So if you think about what you did when you got up this morning, when you, you sort of had your breakfast, if you, if you travel by car or by train, and, and you sit down and there's a chair you're sitting on, you know, these are, these are all uh, constructed from steel and metals. The function of steel and metals affects our daily lives in every single way. So it's really important that we get policy right in this area too. 
Absolutely. Yeah, really key. So uh, the Materials Processing Institute, it, it will provide a, a range of service for members and, and to the, the sector. Can you give a brief overview of, you know, the, the function of the, the institute and, and, you know, what type of businesses does it support? Um, yeah, so we've got a, a, a big range of companies that we work for. So for the steel sector, we work internationally. So these are kind of big steel clients who want to improve the productivity of their processes or develop new steel technologies. We also work for companies in the supply chain as well, and particularly in the region where we're based in Teesside, we do a lot of work with, with SMEs, with small businesses. Um, and actually, we work beyond steel and metals as well. So we do some work in ceramics and glass and, and other materials because of our specialist capability. Yep. But essentially, we have four areas of research focus. Advanced materials, where we develop new metals, new alloys. The circular economy, and a lot of that is about reclaiming um, very precious uh, metals and materials uh, from end-of-life products. Uh, industrial decarbonisation, which is the big net zero question, of course. And yep. digitization, which for us is applying digital technologies in uh, materials processing environments. And in those four areas, what we really try and do is develop technology for commercialization. So when people think about research or innovation, they often think about um, maybe people in universities, in white coats, writing papers. That's all really important work, but our job is to take it to the next level. So we get those results, we upscale them, commercialize them, and get them into a position where they're adding value in the economy. Uh, that's the job that we do. And we do that um, sometimes privately paid and sometimes paid by uh, in collaboration with, with public sector grants as well. So there's a big kind of consortium building element of what we do too. Yeah, I, I see. I see your, you know, you're your, you're a bridge, aren't you, between academia and and industry? Then really, and I suppose somewhat similar to what the the manufacturing technology centre do uh, in the Midlands. You know, in in terms of you know they're involved in a lot of you know robotics and um, you know high tech processes across loads of different industries, and they they also sort of act as that bridge between you know some of the universities and the the manufacturing companies themselves well, obviously you're you're sort of doing that but it's specific to metals materials and and that heavier end of the end of the industry so really important function and service to have um so we've got kind of fundamental research in universities and then people in businesses doing continuous improvement and that bit in the middle is the bit that the UK is generally recognised as being not very good at, the commercialisation bit. We're brilliant at ideas, but quite poor at getting them into practice. Yeah. And we actually call it the valley of death, this bit in the middle where ideas die. Um, so you're right, the Manufacturing Technology Centre and, and a number of other, what are known as catapult centres, support yeah. the manufacturing industry in the UK. And they, they receive sort of core funding from government. They're, they're kind of part of the UK's innovation landscape. We're a bit like that as well, but kind of a private do. So I think the take home message from this is the UK's innovation landscape is really complicated. Yeah. It's a bit too complicated, really. And if you think about it from the point of view of a small business owner or even someone running a big company, you've got an innovation problem. You need to know who do I call? Who's going to help me? Um, and that, that actually can be quite challenging. So one of the jobs that we do for our sector is help navigate companies through that complexity, kind of make it simple for companies to work their way through that. Yeah. So I know that there's, um, you know, there's a, a whole range of sort of, you know, funding available for, for research and, and innovation. You've, you've got something at the Institute called PRISM. Can you just explain a little bit about that, uh, Chris? Yeah, so this was a major um, sort of win for the steel and metal sector. Um, so PRISM stands for a programme of research and innovation for the steel and metal sector. And it's a five year funded programme by the UK government. So we, it took two years to, to pull this together. But in the March 2020 budget, 
the budget that came out just three weeks before the COVID budget, we just managed to sneak under the wire yeah. um, and get this £22 million five-year programme of research for the sector. It's the first time the steel and metal sector in the UK has ever had its own dedicated uh, research fund. Where the, where the body that's delivering it on, be, on behalf of the sector for government. And what government wants to see out of this is a sector that's decarbonised so we can sort of reduce our carbon emissions. And, and it's, a, it's a big carbon emitting sector. It's about 9% of UK emissions come from this sector. So you want big decarbonisation, more digitisation as well, so we can get productivity to world-class productivity levels. And also I mentioned the circular economy earlier. We've got really valuable raw materials in the UK and it's about how we keep them circulating and circulating within our own economy so that we're not having to ship more raw materials in uh, continually from, from overseas. So I mean, I'll give you an example about this. And I think you know, aluminium is a great example. This would apply to copper too. Really, really valuable metals. We can't do anything without them. Yeah. And yet we have the processing facilities in the UK. So end of life metals, they're shipped overseas. Uh, uh, you know, usually places like Germany or the high cost economies, they're processed there and shipped back to the UK. We lose a lot of value we cause a lot of CO2 emissions as a result as well. So trying to solve these structural issues in the economy is something that we're also interested in. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I, I guess, you know, the whole green uh, agenda, um, you know, everybody is is talking about it. Practically all businesses have got to start, um, you know, putting put their own policies in, into action, you know, to meet the, you know, the, the legislation and the, you know, the, you know, the forthcoming demands um, and, you know, it just doesn't make sense either to be shipping, you know, recyclables abroad to come back to be used anyway. You know, surely it, it's got to make sense to be doing that on our own doorstep. You know, it's it's a lot easier and cuts down lead times for supply of the materials back into the system, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right, uh, Jeff. It's a, it's a, it's an issue of, of of carbon emissions, as you say, lead time, security, supply chains. But you know, the way um, supply chains have been with COVID. And I don't know if you remember that uh, big ship that blocked the Suez Canal as well a year or so ago. And yes. you, couldn't, you, you couldn't buy stuff from B&Q because it was all sort of shipped in from China and stuff. Um, and, uh, and also with the war in Ukraine as well. We're, what we're see- and, and Brexit, you know, we're seeing big threats to supply chains. And I think what a lot of manufacturers are realising now is they need local production. So yeah. local supply chains just to create a sense of resilience. We're in a very different world to the world we were in 10 years ago. So a big part of this is also about having some economic resilience in the UK as well. Absolutely. So you've got the, you've actually got an SME technology centre, haven't you, at the Institute? Can you just, uh, you know, explain a little bit about the, the, the capabilities of that technology centre and, and what are the main ways of, of SMEs benefiting from, from those resources? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. So, so, you know, someone who runs a small business, as I do now, and I used to work for a multinational business, um, and, and they're two really quite different beasts, essentially. Um, you know, small businesses don't have that level of resource available to them um, to, uh, to sort of spend a lot of time and money investigating innovations. And also sometimes when a small business engages in an innovation, they're essentially betting the company. They can't afford the innovation to fail or the company would fail as well. I mean, when I used to work in a big company, I had a portfolio of research and innovation projects I ran. I expected maybe 30, 40% of them wouldn't work, but the others would be amazing successes. Mm. You can't, you don't have that luxury in a small business. And so what we recognized is that as, a, as an innovation organization, we were really good at servicing big businesses with lots of resources, but we didn't work with many small businesses and we didn't really understand them either. So we set up a dedicated SME technology center and that's co-funded with our, our local authority, the Tees Valley Combined Authority, and the small businesses themselves. And that helps to de-risk these projects 
for the small businesses so that we can engage more closely. And that's been really successful. And in fact, what we've done in Teesside on our campus where we're based, we've actually created an SME incubator as well. So there are maybe eight, 10 companies in there at any one time. Three of the businesses that we've worked with have become quite large. So they're, they're employing over 30 employees each now. And they're also based on our campus as well. And then hopefully they'll get so big, they'll be too big for us and they can go and build some factories somewhere. And then that'll be, that'll be a real success, you know? Um, so we, we, we've, we've seen that kind of growth pathway work really well. But one great insight we had very early on, we, um, we commissioned some research in small businesses. And what we found was that generally SMEs won't look more than 50 miles away from their base for, for research support. Mm. So if you're, if, you, uh, if you're an SME and you're based in Teesside and the best research support for you is, I don't know, a university in Southampton, say, or something, you'll never find it. So a, a big job that we've got to do is be a gateway to help small businesses to access that innovation support wherever it is. So if they're within our 50 mile radius and they walk through our door, then we will go out to the rest of the UK and we'll find the right partners for them to work with and, and do that job for them as well. That's great because it means the SME can get the support they need. And it also stops them moving out of the region as well, because we want to keep more SMEs in the Tees Valley region and, and help to build a good, strong economy here too. Absolutely. Fantastic, uh, fantastic resource for those businesses. What are businesses in UK steels and, and metals asking for help with the most from the Institute? So the, the biggest challenge really for the metal sector in the UK is that we have a very uncompetitive business environment. Um, so UK steel and metals businesses pay considerably more for their energy than their, uh, their counterparts uh, in Europe, you know, another, another high cost economies. And, and also they don't have the sort of advantages on procurement that um, that uh, other other countries do. So, for instance, um, in, in France or in in, uh, in Germany, uh, public procurement would uh, the public procurement rules favor domestic producers, whereas in the UK, it's, it's very much more focused on price. Mm. Um, and that means it's a really difficult business environment. And that's so that's the number one priority for these businesses. And that's what they focus on. But closely behind that is net zero how they can transition these businesses for the future. And that's, what, again, where they need a huge amount of help. They're going to need uh, help from government, but they need help from us as well to develop and improve the technologies. So on, on net zero, there, are, there is one enormous challenge for this sector, which is that, you know, in many sectors, it's just about moving to green electricity. So, for instance, the Nissan car factory is very close to where I'm sitting now. Um, if they can switch their electricity supply from uh, uh, gas-fired power stations to wind towers, they can green their production line. But in the, metal, in the metals businesses, we burn a lot of gas and we burn a lot of coal as part of the process, not for heating, but for chemical reasons as well, to refine the, uh, the metal and, and create the great properties that we need from the metal as well. So this isn't just about switching the electricity on your production line. It's about throwing the production line in the bin, inventing an entirely new production line and installing that instead. And that's the scale of the challenge for this sector. So we're working on some very specific technologies that will enable us to do that. And the key to unlocking all of it is switching to hydrogen. So hydrogen is going to be the, uh, the really important uh, chemical fuel for the future that will enable this industry to, to, to ditch gas and to ditch coal and to still be able to refine metals. I think from, from you know, all the stuff in the media uh, recently, there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on up in the northeast in terms of 
hydrogen. The, is it the mayor of Teesside? Is uh, you know he's announced a load of uh, you know huge projects and businesses uh, you know expanding their operations. I think at some point that may have a knock-on effect on the labour. Uh, we need to get more people. Uh, you know, probably more houses built and all sorts. But um, you know, it's a nice problem to have if there are jobs being created in the region. But yeah, hydrogen's huge at the moment, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, so I was uh, just on Friday, I was uh, at, at our place, uh, we were installing a new hydrogen gas pipeline as, uh, to network into our experimental facilities so that we can start doing some of the upscaling work around this. And there are some really big challenges. I mean, we need to be able to make hydrogen at large scale, but without carbon emissions. Most hydrogen is made from, um, from methane at the moment, so there's a lot of carbon emissions involved in that. We need to change that. We need to be able to transport it safely as well, and there are some big materials challenges around how we do that and and use it safely as well and and and, uh, and and understand how to use it and what the benefits of it will be and then ultimately there's an economic issue here as well which is hydrogen is always going to be more expensive than oil and, and gas so how can we make the economics of using hydrogen work as well so yeah. massive massive challenges uh, to overcome but um but but really it's the it's it's the really important technology that we need to we need to break through for industry and then also there are questions around well can we use hydrogen for transport can we use hydrogen for domestic heating as well? And you know, that will be a relatively easy switch for homes just to switch from natural gas to hydrogen. Um, but the but the economics fundamentally is, is going to be a really big challenge on this. Yeah. And what about uh, what about skills? You know, what, what are the main challenges around skills in materials processing at the moment, Chris? Well, I think that, that maybe we're quite unusual as a business in that we don't really seem to have many problems filling our vacancies. And I, I kind of think that's because we have a very uh, sort of we have quite a highly motivated workforce solving problems. And if you are an engineer and you're interested in materials, there are, there's a kind of a very small number of jobs available to, to do this kind of problem solving activity. But if I look at the, the sector more broadly, um, what, what, what I think we really need is a transition of skills. And I think this is where there's a big, a big issue, because for net zero and also for digital technologies as well, um, there are a number of kind of really valuable hard won skills of the past that will become redundant quite quickly. So if you, you know, uh, by 2050, if you work in the oil and gas sector, you probably need to transition across to the hydrogen sector. Yeah. If you're involved in manufacturing and processing, you will definitely need digital skills as well, because uh, there's a lot of digit digitization, automation, robotics, artificial intelligence coming in. And so we've got, so to achieve that economy of the future, which is net zero and digital, we need people with net zero and digital skills. And at the same time, we have people with um, quite similar skills who could make the transition who need to be retrained. So that so we've got to do this. We've got to make this a success. And so I think there has to be a big investment over the next couple of decades in helping people to make that transition. And, you know, this is just, you know, this is important from an economic perspective, but it's also important from a social perspective, too. And um, so I, I grew up in a what was at that time a colliery village in County Durham. It's not a colliery village anymore. There are no more collieries left. Um, but what I saw there was a very bad transition. So the main employer in the village closed overnight and everyone was out of work. And frankly, that village still hasn't recovered like many others 20 years on, 30 years on. So if we, if we want this to work from an economic perspective, we need to invest in skills. But from a social perspective, too, it's really important that we invest in enabling people to move to these new jobs yeah absolutely and I, I just hope that um you know businesses are not too slow on on the uptake of, of this transition because it's like anything else you know particularly in you know manufacturing and industry you know most businesses are just head down you know producing 
you know, their, their products, trying to keep their customers happy. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, 80% of, of your capacity, headspace, resources has got to be on the here and now. And then, you know, are these businesses going to be, you know, investing enough time and resource now to prepare themselves for the, the future needs? Maybe some of the bigger organizations are, but I, I do, you know, I sometimes fear for the SME community that, you know, that maybe they're more agile, let's face it. They are more agile, but, um, you know, sometimes there's that sort of lack of knowledge or lack of funds or finance to actually start making changes, you know, because you, you've got to get the, the day job done, haven't you? Um, so generally other stuff outside of keeping your customers happy generally gets pushed further down the, down the priority list, doesn't it? So we've just got to make sure that that doesn't happen, but convincing companies that they need to start looking at it now, if they're not already, that, there's the challenge, isn't it? Well, you're right, Jeff. I mean, if you're in the engineering or the manufacturing sector in the UK, you're running a lean business. I mean, if you weren't, you wouldn't be in business. Um, and so, and you know, if you're an SME in manufacturing as well, your whole business could be orientated around a single machine or, or production line. You might be running a forge or a press or whatever. That might be your business. And then to think that you might move to a point where that piece of equipment is redundant, which if you, if you look at some of these technologies, they're so transformative. So something like additive layer manufacturing, for instance, could strip out huge bits of the supply chain. Yeah. So how do you try? How do you enable your business to transition into this new, you know, digital net zero kind of world? That's that's an enormous challenge for small businesses. And, and I think for that to work, we need the large companies at the end of the supply chain to be working with and helping their supply chain to manage through this. I can't see how else it can happen actually, because yeah. only the big players at the end have got the resources. And the the strategic question for the big companies is. Do you want to help your supply chain to transition or do you or do you want to risk your supply chain collapsing? Now, you know, I think in the past, big companies would have said, well, you know, it's up to the small companies. If they can't make the transition, we'll just buy this from the Netherlands or Germany or China or wherever. We don't care. What I think is different now is that a result of, you know, Brexit and COVID and, you know, war around the world, essentially, not just in Ukraine as well. Large companies are saying, actually, we need a sense of resilience in supply chains as well as cost. So what I... What I hope is that these big companies will now say, now we need to work with our supply chains and help them to transition. Because if they don't, then we do risk losing chunks of our supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, that can stretch across, you know, lots of different sectors, you know, within manufacturing and engineering, you know, and I've, I've sort of worked with, a, you know, a number of businesses in the past where, you know, OEMs will just vacuum up all of the talent from their own supply chain you know uh, and then that just it just creates this uh, this this vacuum of talent you know if you're not pushing pushing skills back in at the at the entry level um you know you end up with well we're already in the problem now aren't we there, there is a skills shortage uh you know in the uk so i think that that notion of large businesses working more closely with their suppliers uh it just makes sense uh, no matter which way you look at it it's um it's it's for the common good for everybody so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate for that as well now that brings me on to uh scholarships uh which is something that i did see on your website uh when i was doing my research there's, there's a number of scholarships available through the materials processing institute can you just tell me what you know what are they who are they available for? Are, you know, are there any sort of, um, you know, typical criteria? Any, any, I know there's some closing dates and things like that. Can you just give some context around, you know, what, what are scholarships and 
how, how do they benefit the, the the sector and individuals of course yeah uh, yeah absolutely jeff so i think we're a bit of an unusual business we're a, a, a company limited by guarantee so we have no shareholders so it gives us a slightly different ethos really and um we have a societal and ethical mission that runs alongside our business objectives and so we aim to invest about two percent of turnover every year in activities associated with our societal and ethical mission which which involve investment in education in economic development and in art and culture uh, very much around the region that we're based in and our sector as well and um, so we've set up over the years a number of initiatives to support that and, uh, and one of them is scholarships so we have two flagship scholarship programs um, so one is is called the Millman Scholarship, which is named after a former colleague, long-standing colleague who worked with the Institute and developed a number of technologies that are, that are used around the world. Uh, uh, Dr. Stuart Millman, he's still around and he helps uh, judge the scholarship every year. Um, and this programme pays for one student from the Teesside area to study at a top UK university every year um, to study material science or something related to material science. So they get the student gets a grant while they're at university. Um, they get uh, work, summer work as well, which could be with us, but actually we try and find uh, opportunities for them in other companies as well, if that's right for their development. They get an industrial mentor. We give them the opportunity for a fourth year project at the university that's relevant in industry, if that's helpful too. Um, so they get that support as they go through, uh, through university and then they might come and work for us or they might not. That's not why we're doing it. You know, they could, they might decide they want to go off and do something else. Uh, they might set up their own business. But what, what they will be yeah. at the end is a is a you know sort of someone who really has a kind of fantastic start in life. And the, the reason that I set this scheme up is because I had a very similar experience myself. So my first job was with British Steel, and they paid for me to go to university. I studied chemical engineering at Cambridge University, and I could never have done that without the support of British Steel. And, and that was a big company doing that. And I know that there are so few companies who, who do this now. So I wanted to set up something like that for um uh, for students in Teesside. Um, and then the second uh, scholarship that we've just set up, actually, um, it's called the Ashok Kumar Fellowship. And it's named after a, a former member of parliament from Teesside uh, who used to, he started his career as a chemical engineer in the steel industry in our institute. And then he went yeah. into parliament, a very well respected uh, member of parliament, but he, he sadly died of a heart attack in, in 2010, very suddenly. Um, and so we set up this fellowship in his uh, memory. And that pays for one student to, to have a placement in Parliament, in the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology. And what they do there is they write a paper that helps inform policy making uh, around some topic to do with engineering, because there aren't many engineers in Parliament or, or scientific or even manufacturing people, actually, there aren't many. So yeah. this just helps to get better policy in that area. But it also helps people in industry to realise that actually politics is quite hard as well. And there are different challenges and different objectives there. And we need to get people talking to each other. Um, and so that's that that that's what that fellowship aims to do. And again, it's been really well supported. I'm pleased to say as well. We so we we co-fund these um, these we set them up. We co-fund them. There are other organisations involved. The Institute of Chemical Engineers supports our parliamentary fellowship, and both of these fellowships are supported by one of the London guilds as well, the Company of Armourers and Braziers, who do a yep. lot of charitable yep. work in material science. So it's a real kind of consortium of support that uh, that helps to do this. But you know, we, we set it up and we're, we're the catalyst for it, for it as well. And, you know, I hope that by doing this, we give some great opportunities for young people and they can go on our website. And as you said, they can see how, how to apply uh, for these. But also, you know, there are other companies out there as well. This is a really great thing to do uh, to help your own communities and also help people in your sector. 
Absolutely. I'd, you know, it'd be great if, if more, you know, uh, more manufacturing, engineering businesses uh, and, and organisations, you know, like like the uh, the Materials Processing Institute did a similar a similar sort of scheme, really. Um, it, it's great for the industry. It's great for, you know, those individuals. It's something that's it's not unusual, but it, it doesn't happen as often as it should, really, uh, with the cost of going to university these days as well and all debt involved in that you know uh, particularly with some of these sectors where that, that are quite niche you know like materials processing um you know getting people through you know a university degree and getting them some experience in industry it is vital so hopefully uh, there may be some listeners to this podcast out there in industry that might think that's a good idea and uh want to do the same in in their uh in, in their neck of the woods as well so what what does the future of, of the materials processing sector look like in the UK then moving forward? Lots of agendas, green energy, you know, lo- lots of change, digitalization. Where is everything heading? What's the landscape going to look like in terms of materials processing? Well, I think it's a pretty exciting time, actually, uh, Jeff. So the, um, the so the thing about materials is that they're, they're around us so much that you you, you stop noticing them really. But you know, every as I mentioned about steel and metals, but if you look at materials more broadly. Um, everything we do is involves some materials. You know, ultimately we have to dig something out of the ground somewhere in order to do absolutely everything that we want to do. Um, and the, we, when we want to do something, we pick a material that does the right job. You know, whether that's a material that's lightweight that keeps an aircraft in the sky, it's high temperature so it stops a, a reactor melting, um, or, uh, or or it's scratch resistant or corrosion resistant or whatever. You have to pick the right properties, and those properties are set. By the processing. And this is a really strange thing about materials is that you can make them in different ways to get different properties. So a really good example of this is, you know, all of us are carrying around a smartphone in our pockets at the moment, and the screen on those smartphones is made out of a special type of glass, um, which was uh, de- and, uh, developed in the USA, and it's a glass that's um, is flaw- almost flawless, which means that it's, it's, it's very tough, very durable, uh, very resistant to damage. Um, though you might not think that if you've cracked your phone screen as many times as I have. Um, so, um, uh, uh, but the only way to make a uh, uh, make glass that's that's flawless was to come up with an entirely new processing method that doesn't allow any flaws to be to be uh, put in the glass in the first place. So, so someone invents the smartphone, but you can only have the smart smartphone if someone comes up with a new glass processing technology to give you a touch screen on the front of the device. So that's that's where the the sort of the, the materials processing scientists and engineers are the sort of the hidden heroes of a lot of this new technology that's being developed. So I think that what we'll see in the future are some like lots of great new processes that need to be brought on stream to help us to satisfy new applications. We've got to do this in a way that's net zero as well. So we're not, you know, we're taking out the biggest emitting sector in the world has to get its emissions down. If you include mining as well, that's just enormous. And then the, then the third thing is, and this is really about raw materials, how can we have a more sustainable and ethically and environmentally sustainable industry by by using all of our raw materials, get them to the end of life, and then bring them back into circulation against this whole circular economy thing, which, which again requires a whole load of new processing technologies as well. So the, the, the opportunity in the field is immense, uh, technologically and economically um, as well, but also it's vital. If we don't get this right, if we don't manage to use our, our resources that we have, these finite resources on the planet in a sustainable way, then, then we'll run out. And also, if we don't develop these new processing technologies, we won't be able to deliver the things that we need to deliver in, in healthcare, in transport, 
in education, in, in all of these other sectors that we need for the future as well. Yeah. So what you're saying, basically, there are great opportunities out there for people to get involved in the materials processing sector. You know, this this work that collectively, uh, you know, you're all doing in the sector is it, it, not going to end anytime soon. It's it's an involvement. It, there's innovation constantly. So, you know, there's a great future, you know, in materials processing. So um, a good advert, I think, to, to get more youngsters into engineering, science, you know, chemistry, materials, uh, a world of opportunity. Absolutely right. Yeah, thanks. Jim. Brilliant. OK, well, well, that pretty much wraps us up uh, for today's episode, Chris. It's been an interesting conversation. There, there's so much more you know, involved with materials processing than, you know, the general person on the street would uh, would imagine. And, uh, you know, such an important uh, part of the sector. So thank you very much indeed for coming on. That's pretty much it for today. So thank you for listening. Look out for the next episode of Insights for Manufacturing and see you next time. Bye-bye.